1: Shalom, welcome to Torah to the People. I am Rabbi Jeff Dreyfus, and it is my honor to be joined today by Jimmy Jalinak. Um, Jimmy is of counsel at Harris Shelton, um, and he specialized throughout his career in real estate and business transactions. Jimmy is a past president, both of the junior congregation here at Temple and uh, Temple Israel as a whole. Uh, he is a husband to Natalie and father to Molly Wexler and Katie Levitt. Um We are so honored, Jimmy, that you're here with us today. Welcome to Tour to the People.
0: Well, thank you. I'm honored to be here. Well, you have
1: uh, a relationship with this place, with Temple Israel, that has spanned uh, many decades and generations. And I'd love to, just as we begin our podcast, to talk about that, about your relationship with this place Um, Your parents moved here from New Orleans when you were uh, at a fairly young age. Five. Five. So I don't even know if you remember the Big Easy uh, as a kid or much of it. I really don't. So most of your life was spent here. I'd love for you to talk about what it was like um, for you moving to Memphis. And then um, I know you had an interesting experience with your bar mitzvah as as an early Jewish memory. So I'd love to hear about both of
0: those. Well, I mean, I I went to... uh, the Temple of Israel Religious School, you know, from kindergarten forward, I'm sure it never occurred to my parents in their wildest dreams not to be active, loyal members of the temple. They were loyal, active members of Sinai congregation in New Orleans. Um, uh, temple participation was very, very important to my parents, um, and I was always told that. Um, so I went to Sunday school, and when the appropriate time came, I wanted to be bar mitzvahed. I'll I take that back. My mother wanted me to be bar mitzvahed. Uh, I don't know that I chose to be, but I did what I was told. Um, and uh, there was no Hebrew taught here at Temple Israel that I could uh, learn uh, my bar mitzvah pieces from. Uh, a woman, oh, I can't remember I think her name was something like Speck, Mrs. Speck, uh, uh, a... Uh, Jewish woman from from somewhere in Europe, hmm. probably a Holocaust survivor. I'm not sure. Uh, came to my house. and taught me pretty much how to pronounce illiter- transliterations. I don't know that I ever really learned how to read Hebrew as such. Uh, I was told by my mother, as best as I can recall, that Rabbi Wax really didn't think Bar Mitzvah was a uh, something that Reform classical Reform Jews should be interested in. So Rabbi Edelson came back from retirement to do my bar mitzvah. Um, So as far as I know, I was bar mitzvah. If you held a gun to my head, I don't think I can tell you what my passage was. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I I certainly have happy memories of it, I guess.
1: Well, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And and today I'd love to talk about, um, I meant to say this as we began, but I'd love to talk about that Jewish journey that began um, here at Temple. Uh, from your bar mitzvah all the way to very special relationships with uh, Rabbi Wax and Rabbi Danziger um, into, stretching into this present day, and um, how that Jewish journey and Jewish identity and sense of Jewish values that you developed led you um, on this really fascinating and inspiring life uh, that you've led.
0: Well, I mean, I continued going to the temple religious school. Um, I remember uh, uh, learning one Hebrew prayer, the adoration. Um, my family were always amazed, and I recite that one prayer every time I come to services because I still remember it. Um, and uh, and uh, from Ruth Rosenthal was my really? teacher that, that taught me that. I remember her, um, and, and and I always felt very close to temples. I was. Very active in, in what we call the junior congregation. I went to uh, uh, Nifty National Federation of Temple Youth Leadership Institute at Oconomowoc, Wisconsin, for a couple of weeks in my, uh, the summer between my junior and senior years.
1: And I'm sorry to interrupt, but just for those of you um, who are familiar with the reform camps today, that's uh, Camp Os Rui. Um, the Olin Sang Ruby Union Institute is now... Um, is in Akonma Walk where you're talking about? No, oh, okay, I don't think I knew that.
0: Yeah, um, but I think that was the only camp at the time that I w- was there, um, and 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 the camp was uh, had on its staff some uh, incredible people. Um, Al Vorspan, I got to know pretty well. In fact, I've been in touch with his son and daughter-in-law who live in Austin since uh, in more recent days, weeks, years. Wow, and and. Uh, Ali Schindler, who was president of the uh, uh, Union of American Hebrew Congregations, whatever it's called now, the
1: right now the URJ. The URJ. And, Union. and Al Vorspan, who you mentioned a minute ago, was the founder of the Religious Action Center, the RAC, um, and now which is the reform movement's kind of lobbying arm for social justice. And uh, the, the text of both the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act were drafted in the conference room um, of the RAC, um, just as one, one piece of the RAC's impact uh, for, for our listeners.
0: Right. I, I, I consider those two men, Alex Schindler and Al Voysband, as being a major influence in my life, on my political views, on my social justice views, on my relationships with people who don't look or pray... Quite like I do, um, I think they encouraged me to, to do all of that. Mm. Uh, there was an elderly rabbi from HUC, um, Hebrew Union College, Abraham Kronbach, that I got spent a good bit of time uh, chatting with uh, at Kadamawak, and uh, uh, just remember a lot of things about him. I, I remember uh, this is one thing that sticks in my mind frequently, uh, saying to him, Rabbi Kronbach you know, how do you know there's a God? And he said to me, well, you know, I, for a long time I really wasn't sure. But then when my first child was born, I saw a God on the face of my wife, and I knew there had to be a God. Uh, that is, I think of that frequently. Hmm. Uh, what, 80 years later, something like that? Not 80, but long, 75, a long, long time later. So I was, I was very, uh, not just uh, uh, participating in, in high school Activities, but very enthusiastically so. And it was a a part of my social life. Um, In college, not so much. Uh, I had certainly Jewish friends, but I had plenty of non Jewish friends. Um, My parents, uh, while they were very devout, loyal, reformed Jews, they weren't so much interested in Israel. They kind of never talked about Israel. Uh, They never associated much with more traditional uh, Jews. Um, I felt a little alienated from, from people who were, you know, more Jewish, quote unquote, than me. Uh, I, I remember coming home uh, winter, what well, we now euphemistically referred to as winter vacation, uh, <laughs> my freshman year, and I learned a few Yiddish words. Never did I learn a Yiddish word in Memphis, the Temple of Israel, but I learned a few Yiddish words from my Episcopalian Classmate who lived across the hall from me, he's from Miami and went to school with a lot of Jews, and and, and he and I to this day are very very close friends, and and I, not not dirty words, but words like you know hutzpah, <laughs> well my mother was outraged. Well you shouldn't say those words like that. What would the neighbors think? Um, so there was there was that kind of an atmosphere of uh, being very proud to be Jewish, but don't show it too much, hmm. um, and Cot-
1: especially. You, you went off to Yale, yes, and y- you were telling me a few minutes ago before we started recording that um, in those days there were quotas for Jews at
0: Yale. Ab- absolutely quotas. I'm not sure I was aware of it uh, very much at the time. Uh, Yale has pretty much admitted and apologized for it since, but there's no question about it that exactly 10% of each class uh, was Jewish. Um, and. Uh, which for for a Memphian, I mean,
1: imagining ten percent of your any grade here in Memphis, uh, unless you go to the Hebrew Academy or or Born Bloom, ten uh, percent sounds like a lot. Oh yeah, but it was capped not not a person more than ten percent. That's right.
0: Well, I guarantee you, ten percent of my uh, high school graduating class at East High School was not Jewish. Right. Uh, although uh, there were a lot of you know, we were not unknown at East High for, by any means. Um, I don't know that I—the I, rumor was that I did not get into the fraternity my junior year because I was blackballed by somebody whose mother ran off with a Jewish guy. Um, I pretty much have had that person confess that to me. I don't care. <laughs> it didn't care then, so it wasn't a big deal. But it was sort of a, a bit of anti-Semitism that I was pretty much un, not used to. Uh, and the most of the anti-Semitism that I was used to, my high school and early college days would have been reformed Jews uh, dismissing more traditional Jews. Uh, the notion that I felt more comfortable uh, dating an Episcopalian than I did dating an Orthodox Jew. That, of course, is no longer the case at all, um, but uh, it was with that background that I that I was at, at Yale. Um, I... T- I I had become very good friends, well, I don't know if friends was the right word, but uh, I got to know well a man who was a provost of the university, he was the master, the guy who who was a resident leader of my residential college, uh, a man named uh, Norman S. Buck, and one day when I was in law school, I happened to be walking along the street, and, and, and Dean Buck came out of a doorway and sort of fell in line walking with me, and we greeted each other, and and I was sort of desperate for something to say. I, I don't deal well with silence. And I saw the Yale insignia on the side of a building, and I said, Dean Buck, I'm curious. I know what Lux said veritas means, light and truth. I know what the Latin means, but there's Hebrew letters on there. What does the Hebrew mean? And he said, without missing a step, Jews need not apply. Now, I think he intended that as humor, but I'm not so sure. I'm not mm. so sure. Um, wow. Wow.
1: And I mean, all the, it resonates all the more so in these last few weeks when we've heard about UC Berkeley Law School and the anti-Semitism taking place there. Exactly. Um, the resurgence of anti-Semitism on college campuses right. from from the left, not from the right. Uh, of course, that exists too, but more these college campuses, of course, are on the, the far left. Um, so it, it's history, uh, what's the word? History echoes. Yeah.
0: As, as I was discussing with a a good friend at lunch today. Um, we, we really can't claim that Donald Trump and his colleagues created bigotry in this country. They just allowed it to rise up and be seen a little more openly than it had been before. Mm-hmm. They sort of legitimatized, if you will, uh, bigotry. Right. And so it, it's always it's always been there. Um, I can tell you about the, being president of the junior congregation. Yeah. I, I wrote home a letter my, free, my freshman year uh, to my parents about what a great football game I, uh, I went to on, Friday, on a Saturday, the previous uh, Saturday. And I received back a week or so later, uh, we, we didn't make phone calls in those days, I received back a scathing letter from my mother. How could you, the president of the junior congregation, go to a football game on Yom Kippur? I, of course, was not aware of the fact that it was Yom Kippur. Well, that was a mistake I made. I admit that I should not have done that, I suppose. But, but the biggest mistake I made was showing that letter to my friend from Miami, Guy Bailey, who has to this day not let me forget it. Whenever I do something that he thinks is wrong, if I order the, the, the uh, Brussels sprouts instead of the string beans, he'll say, how could you, the president <laughs> of the Jewish congregation, order the Brussels sprouts? So that, that's funny that that being president of the junior congregation is something I get reminded of frequently. That's funny.
1: Well, it led <laughs> to uh, a great many things, one of which was being president of of Temple, um, the the congregation as a whole. But before we get to that, I do want to talk uh, just briefly about uh, your lovely wife, Natalie, and how you met and how you convinced uh, her to move all the way <laughs> to the deep south in, in Memphis.
0: Well, Na- Natalie, uh, My last day in New Haven, my last evening in New Haven, I ran to a uh, fellow law student uh, who actually was uh, Nick Freud. He was the good doctor's nephew or great-nephew, I guess great-nephew.
1: Sigmund Freud's great-nephew. Sigmund Freud's
0: great nephews who fixed us up. So, you know, it's got to be right. And and he told me that he had met this nice girl uh, the summer before in New York and gave me her name and number. And so I called her. And I chatted for a minute and uh, asked her out for Saturday night. And she said, oh, I'm sorry, I can't. I'm busy Saturday night. And knowing my personality, that would have interpreted that as a total rejection and would never have called again. But Natalie said, how about Sunday night? And I said, okay, great. And uh, that was it. I was a a dashing young bachelor in New York for about two weeks uh, when I met Natalie. And we got married six months later, which uh, if one of my daughters had married some guy she met six, only six months before, I probably would have chained her to her bed. But uh, it's, it's, it's been wonderful. Wow. Uh, her, uh, I said to her, you know, you're, you're, you're likely to end up in Memphis, Tennessee. How do you feel about living the rest of your life in Memphis, Tennessee? And she said, well, if you take me on a vacation to Europe first, I'll do it. So that was our marriage contract. There you go and the rest is history. The rest is history. Um,
1: So once you move back to Memphis and I would like us to spend a little time on on Rabbi Wax um, because uh, this is a shameless plug but we have this wonderful exhibit the Temple Israel Museum is putting on um, about Rabbi Wax who served this congregation for many decades and um, was a key uh, leader in the civil rights movement here in Memphis and around the country. Once you moved home to Memphis, uh, can you talk a little bit about your relationship with Rabbi Wax you developed here? And then uh, years later, you'd go on to be the president of this congregation. Uh, we'll get to that in a, in, in a couple of minutes. But can you talk about what your impression of as an adult, you knew Rabbi Wax as, as a child, but as an adult, seeing him lead this congregation, uh, what kind of impact did he
0: make on you? Oh, I think Rabbi Wax was a tremendous impact on me. Um, first of all, Rabbi Wax, while he was passionately classical Reform Jewish, although he mellowed as time went by in terms of the relationship with Israel, a relationship with uh, more traditional Jews, uh, he he was very much a devotee of the social action aspects of Judaism. And I think that had a tremendous impact on me. I think he, he was, I give him a great deal of the responsibility for my social and political views. Um, when I was in college, in law school, I think I pretty much every vacation would try to come by and visit with Rabbi Wax. Uh, we would have lunch. Um, I don't think it would be fair for me to tell you what and where we ate it, but, uh, but I always enjoyed talking to him, either about my own personal problems or what's going on in society, What's going on in the Jewish world? Um, uh, I felt very, very close to him, and and uh, was exceedingly proud of him in the whole Henry Loeb uh, sanitation workers strike and his leadership. I know it was not easy for him. He is, he is not Superman. He was an ordinary human being, just like you and me. And and, and he, he he rose above whatever. Uh, hesitation he may have just because of being human to do what he thought was right and it was right hmm. and I was exceedingly proud of him I, I'll never forget going to I think that happened on a Thursday if I recall and I was going, going to Friday night services at the what I still call the old temple um, and that it was uh, um, at 5 o'clock it started early because no, we had a curfew and so forth, and, and I, I, I'm not sure that we had a minion, but there were a few people there. And, and he, he gave a wonderful sermon about uh, doing the right thing and, 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 and social justice. And it's, it was a very important moment in my life. Mm.
1: Wow. I, I can't imagine really not only being around during that time, um, but being a part of a community in which you certainly thought he was doing the right thing. Um, many people though, not only around the city, but also in this Jewish community yes. did wish that he hadn't done that. That's right.
0: I think I think we had people in our congregation who felt threatened by it, who felt embarrassed. You know, nobody's gonna come by my store because the rabbi has, has done this, that that sort of thing. Um, I think we also had people in our congregation who turned out to be uh, t- tremendous leaders. Um, and I think all that comes out in the, in the exhibit. If you, I'll continue with that plug. Uh, it's a wonderful exhibit. It was produced in-house and it really is a wonderful exhibit. Uh, it, it does not show, maybe it didn't have to, it really doesn't show what a really terrible bigot Henry Loeb was and the fact that Henry Loeb had ties to Rabbi Wax. I mean, the Loeb family were temple members. I think Henry, by that time, was an Episcopalian, but he, uh, you know, he and Rabbi Wax knew each other.
1: I'm pretty sure that he was in Rabbi Wax's confirmation class.
0: Uh, was he? I wouldn't be at all surprised. Wouldn't be at all surprised. And I think Rabbi Wax probably had stronger feelings of of injustice on the part of the mayor Loeb because of that mm. than he would have been even for for a total stranger that he felt sort of betrayed in a way. Um, It was an interesting relationship, but but, but Rabbi Wax showed incredible courage.
1: What do you think, I mean, knowing him personally, what do you think it was like for him to suddenly be thrust not only in the spotlight, I mean, from everything I've heard from people who knew him, he really, he cared about getting things done, but he thought the best way to get things done was behind the scenes. And for him to to be standing in front of the mayor with hundreds of people around, and then for that to be broadcast around the entire country and the entire world, what kind of impact did that have on him?
0: Oh, I, I think it was it was out of character, uh, not out of character morally, not out of character in terms of ethics, but out of character in terms of personality. Uh, uh, Rabbi Wax was not, in my opinion, an egotistical person, and and he... I mean, he he, um, he he cautioned me. He I I, I, I remember uh, telling him about uh, what we called in in 1961 a girl that, that I was dating, and 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 she didn't quite meet his criteria. And he very nicely let me know and suggested ways that I deal with it. Okay. And 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 you uh, very kindly though, very kindly and. And, you know, like, like my uncle. And uh, that's the kind of man I thought he was. I mean, I, I thought he was a, a, a personal leader, so to speak. Um, and, and, and one of the things that, that, that keeps me at Temple Israel, other than just habit to some extent, <laughs> uh, is, the, is, the, is the wonderful relationship I've had with, with the rabbis here. And, and that's a unique thing in this country, I think.
1: It is. In rabbinical school, you know, sometimes uh, they teach you about your—I'm not going to say persona. That's not the right word, but but the amount of yourself that you share with your congregants. And um, different professors have different perspectives, but it's always seemed to me to be a little— uh, just foreign, to the idea of, of being a rabbi and not being in personal relationship with the people that you serve. And may, I, maybe that's because, I've never really thought about it like this, but all the rabbis I've ever known at, at, here at Temple in Memphis have been exactly who they are. They're not one person on the Bema and another person uh, you know, in real life. They're, they're just themselves and they, they share who they are and they're in relationship with the people that they, that they serve.
0: I think that's right. I think that's right. You know, in a congregation this large and this diverse, uh, people are here from various Jewish backgrounds, uh, they're here from various geographic backgrounds, various economic backgrounds, it, it's hard to be close to everybody, but you can you know, be warm and friendly to everybody, and I think, I think our rabbis always have been. I used to I used to kid Rabbi Wax and say it's remarkable to me how you know everybody's name, but of course everybody's name is fella. <laughs> <laughs> or you, you say how are you tonight, fella? You know, and, and and everybody knew that it was okay.
1: It's it's tough. It's tough. My yeah. my wife Rachel is so good at names, uh, remembering names. And I, I'll remember if if we ate lunch together, I'll remember what you ordered 20 years later. But man. Names are not; they don't come as naturally to me.
0: And, and as you get older, I warn you—that's what's going to go first.
1: Wow. <laughs> well, something to look forward to. That's
0: my—that's my, that's my toughest uh, thing to, to deal with: is not not remembering names.
1: Well, I want to ask before we move on to um, your relationship with Rabbi Danziger, which I know remains very close um, to this day. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what Rabbi Wax was like off the bema, um, in in a personal life? Because in this exhibit, we we see that a little bit, but most of it is is what he stood for publicly, mm-hmm. um, and the, the accomplish his public accomplishments. What was he like as a friend?
0: I, I think. Well, I can't say that I was his friend. I mean, because he was a lot older than me, and and he was much more of a of a mentor, or a leader than a than a friend as such. Um, and, and he fussed at me occasionally at something that he, he thought I did that he didn't really like very much. But but uh, and he was usually right. But uh, um, I thought of him as being rather shy. Hmm. Um, I was not withdrawn no, at all. I mean, he was you know he he got along with people. But he was he was. I never thought of him as having an ego. Now maybe other people would disagree with me, but I always thought of him as being, you know. Uh, warm and, and, and friendly, but uh, a little bit on the shy side and a little a little withdrawn. Um, Mrs. Wax was a warm, wonderful person. Um, and I've, I've had many enjoyable times chatting with her. Hmm.
1: It's it's just interesting thinking about serving a congregation of our size and being on the shy side. I mean, it, it's. It's fascinating because every rabbi um, has their own personality and their own style. And um, I just, I, I'm a little surprised to hear that about Rabbi yeah. Weiss.
0: Um, well, maybe not, that might not be everybody's impression. But, but uh, uh, um, you know, uh, people thought that we, when we, Rabbi Wax was very much in favor of this new building where, mm. we're, where we're sitting now. And, and, and some people who were opposed to it thought that Rabbi Wax looked upon the new building as sort of a, a, a monument to him. Well, I never thought of that at all. I always thought that he, he felt that the old building was, was uh, uh, physically inadequate, structurally inadequate for our needs, for a growing congregation. Uh, it was far removed from where people were living at that time. And he felt that it needed a location where the people are. Which is certainly, I think, absolutely true. Um, I never saw any ego in his support of this building at all, hmm. but a lot of other people did. And uh, now that maybe those were people who just didn't want to have a new building, or just didn't want to pay the money, um, <laughs> whatever. Right. right. Yeah.
1: Fascinating. So uh, I, when I had um, a conversation of about a month ago with Susie Thorpe before the the exhibit started. Mm-hmm. Um, her impression was that um, from interview, from looking at interviews and, and records and whatnot, that he really thought, no matter uh, taking into account everything he did in the course of his ravenant, that this, in his mind, this building was his crowning achievement. Um, and she thought that the reason behind that was really he looked at this building as the bridge to the future. That the Jewish community in Memphis would not continue to exist would not continue to thrive unless we had a building like like this um, but also close to the people close to where they um close to where they live uh, but so the the second rabbi to serve as senior rabbi here in this in this new building um Rabbi Danziger had um it is a close friend of yours. Um, can, you talk, can you talk about that? And how? when, um, when you were president of this congregation, which um, Rabbi Greenstein always jokes that they're uh, the most unappreciated volunteers uh, in, in any synagogue position because they work, it's another full-time job being a synagogue president and the work you oftentimes have to make hard decisions. So can you talk about what it was like to be president, especially alongside such a close friend?
0: Well, I love, I have to confess that I loved being president of Temple Israel. I really did. I mean, there were lots of problems. Uh, you know, gosh, we, we, we did something to make some child in the religious school sick. He was allergic to whatever we served. I mean, those kinds of problems. Uh, people were, we had uh, uh, a very prominent member who was uh, furious at the rabbis for not uh, uh, being as uh, vocally uh, involved in fighting anti-Semitism in one of our private schools. Uh, uh, that's as innocuous a way hmm. to, to express it as I could. Um, you know, this is not without its problems. Um, one of the things that I like to say most about Temple Israel is if we had problems, we solved them in a very humane way, Without hurting anybody, I don't know of any instance where we did that, uh, where we hurt somebody. Uh, This has always been a very kind, person-oriented congregation to me. And so I I love being president. I love my relationship with the rabbi. Uh, when, When Natalie and I moved to Memphis, within a few weeks after moving here, we were out to dinner at one of those cheap steak places. I forgot, the Blazer Steak or something, I can't remember the name of it. And, and, and I looked over at another table, and there was Jeannie Chappan, who I knew as a teenager and with a strange man, who turned out to be her now new husband, Rabbi Danziger. So we went and said hello, and we sat together, and just from that moment on, we were close friends. Um, uh, I felt that I was largely instrumental in in uh, in uh, luring him back here from Baltimore and... and and all of that. Um, I mean, we've just been very, very close friends in every aspect of life. Um, uh, He asked me to be the chairman of the committee to plan with him uh, Temple Israel's first uh, trip to Israel, which I did. I have to say that uh, before the Six-Day War, I I didn't know quite what to think about Israel. I didn't know whether I really had a relationship with it or not. But he's instructed me in it, uh, we we went. We had a wonderful time. We became very uh, very loyal to the, to the to the people in the country, um, and and so it's been a, a wonderful relationship. Um, when I was president, I went to a couple of meetings of what I the presidents of large congregations was a uh, part of the union that met frequently, sometimes during a biennial and sometimes not, and so. Uh, Danny Syme, who was then the vice president of the union, uh, asked me to lead a workshop at the presidents of large congregations. I, sometimes I refer to it as the, the fat congregation presidents, but the presidents of large congregations meeting. And we and we had about 100 people in, uh, in that workshop, and the workshop was on the subject of president-rabbi relations. And I, I, I have notes that I should get to the archives, maybe. Yeah, you but, should. Yeah. Well, I'll have to find them first. But anyway, um, at one point, I said to these, these people, uh, I said, look, we don't really know each other. We're, we're all going to, not going to see each other again anytime soon, so we could all be honest. Let me ask a question. How many of you trust your rabbi? Of the hundred and so people there, maybe three raised their hand. A- a- and it revealed to me and that's where we had a, a long discussion of how can you have a trusting relationship with the rabbi. We always had that here at Temple Israel. I mean, including Rabbi Wax, everything, I don't know anybody that didn't trust Rabbi Wax and honor Rabbi Wax, and certainly that was true of Rabbi Danziger and Rabbi Greenstein. Um, and uh, I wish the country could could learn to adopt those attitudes of, being able to trust and get along with people whose views may be the same as yours, and may be different. Um, wouldn't that, we'd be a much better place off than we, when we are today. But, but that experience sort of taught me what how really fortunate I was to, 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 to do that. Uh, another such meeting I went to, I didn't ask any questions specifically, but I got the impression that, 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 that the president of the congregation I think in San Antonio, and I were the only ones who said, you know, we really like this job. We really enjoy being the president of the congregation. So it's a shame that that's not true everywhere. Maybe it is more today, but it wasn't then. Hmm. This was 1990, 1992. It is a shame yeah.
1: It's a, because it's such a noble task for a year or two or three, how, however long uh, in, in any congregation you serve as president. And... Um, you are—it's it, an honor, it's a responsibility, and a sacred one. And it, it is sad to me that um, people didn't like it, and the, even more so that the rabbis didn't earn their trust.
0: I, I think I think many of my colleagues, predecessors and successors as president of Temple of Israel felt the same way. I mean, I know Leo Bierman told me he says, "Look, if they would have let me president for life, I'm here." I'm ready. Um, I think he really meant that.
1: Hmm. Wow! It just speaks to how blessed we are, both with with rabbis and with lay people who are so committed to this place. Yeah. So, but speaking of rabbis, under your presidency, um, you were responsible—at um, least you were president when we hired Rabbi Greenstein um, as a young rabbi.
0: Actually, I may have been president-elect. Okay, but I think it was president when he got. Sworn in or whatever, whatever they call it, and but you were involved in the search
1: or in, oh, in yes. meeting him when he was. Oh, very was much here so, very much so. With him and Cheryl, so can you share uh, your your impressions of um, thirty one year years ago, well, Rabbi Micah Greenstein?
0: It's, it's a very interesting thing. Rabbi Danziger decided to bring in three candidates. Usually, he selected his his uh, associates assist, assistant on his own, and everybody said, fine, you did a good job, we love him, or her. Uh, we, we had, we had uh, female rabbis, too of the Rabbi Danziger, which we didn't have before, of course. Um, one of my favorite stories, I've got to tell this story. My, sure, my My mother always made chopped livers. My mother was not the world's best cook, but she did have the world's best chopped liver, and she always made a dish of chopped liver for the rabbi and cantor at Rosh Hashanah. And so I said to her, the appropriate year, I forget what year this was, I said, Mom, you know, Rabbi Abramson is here now, uh, are you going to make chopped liver again this year? She said, of course. I said, well, don't forget to make some for Rabbi Abramson. And there was this sort of pregnant pause, and my mother said, she can make her own chopped liver. <laughs> and I thought, there's a symbol of where we're going with this, <laughs> this progress, but uh, at any rate, uh, yes, I, I, uh, we interviewed all three of those candidates. Um, the board did. They all came and met with the board. Uh, uh, Micah was frankly uh, uh, sort of a, what do we call it, horse racing, the guy who comes from behind. The One of them had been an intern here. I've forgotten his name now. Barry, Barry. Uh,
1: Rabbi Block? Block, Barry Block, Barry Block thank you, thank you. I know you. they're in the same class. He's now the senior rabbi in Little Rock. In Little
0: Rock, correct. Barry Block had been the Softie, uh advisor and was well known to our congregation. In fact, Rabbi, uh, rabbi Block was advisor at Softy the year that my daughter Katie was president. So mm-hmm. I knew Barry quite well. And uh, Micah was just sort of came along, and he, he snowed us all. And, and was the overwhelming first choice, and uh, still is. Wow. I, I take some credit, I don't know if Micah agrees with me or not, but I take some credit as first, uh, I don't know if I was the first to introduce the subject, but I certainly pushed the subject of Micah being Harry's successor, of his not following the path that most rabbis do is come to a congregation like this for three, four, five, six years, and then go into a smaller congregation and maybe some other bigger congregation that as Harry did, that he that he should just stay and, and be Harry's successor. And I was always in favor of that and still am.
1: What was your, um, do you remember like the first time you met him and just how he uh, made you feel in that moment? Or just ever since then has well, been.
0: It, uh, well, I, don't, I mean. He 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 is really not an off-putting person. A lot of rabbis, with all due respect, uh, <laughs> a lot of rabbis kind of have a off-putting, you know, self sense of self-importance. Uh, he doesn't. He, he really makes you feel like 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 you you want to be his friend. It's true. Uh, and 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 his first year here, um, uh, he and I got into some. Uh, we were on the same side. I don't want to say we were fighting with each other, but but. But some of those issues about anti-Semitism in public school, private schools rather, um, that he got involved in, and uh, you know, I needed to battle a little bit with some of my congregants, um, and uh, uh, without naming any names, and uh, he he acted, I mean, he very responsibly and very very uh, maturely in all of that. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, or not, no, but,
1: I, it's just it, it's amazing that it's been thirty, almost thirty-one years.
0: I know. See, I, I still call him the young rabbi. I guess you'll have to be that now. But uh.
1: yeah, I always joke <laughs> that um, if I if I shave, you know, I have a. This is a podcast, so if, if we've never met in person and you're listening, I have a, a little beard, and I I always joke that if I I, I have it because. If I uh, shave, then everyone will think that I'm not the rabbi, but it's my bar mitzvah
0: when I'm up on the vima, so. <laughs> I remember that, that when Cantor when Kaplan started, he had a beard. Maybe he always had a beard. I can't remember. But he had a beard when Cantor when, when, when Kaplan started. And I, and I asked my mother, well, what do you think of Cantor Kaplan? And she said, i love to close my eyes and listen to him sing.
1: <laughs> she didn't like the beard. She didn't <laughs> like the beard. That's funny. Well, Canter Kaplan, if you're listening, I always liked your beard.
0: So, <laughs> I, 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 grew, I grew a beard on a long trip that Daly and I took. My mother met us at the plane. When I got off the plane, she looked at me and she said, you know, you read about things like this in the paper. But I never thought it happened to my own child. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny.
1: Well, um, I want to talk. We've been talking a lot about you and your relationship at Temple. But I want to shift the conversation to beyond Temple. Um, the the values that you learned at this place um, from Rabbi Vorspan um, at Akonim Walk, and um, that Rabbi Wax and Rabbi Danziger and, and Rabbi Greenspan embodied, um, inspired you to not just be a successful attorney, um, though you were, but uh, and, and are, but. Um, really inspired you to want to make this city and this world a better place. Um, you were always a big advocate for public education. You were involved in the Urban League for many years, the the zoo here in Memphis uh, for for many years, and to this day. What what would you say um, were some of the things that inspired you as a Jew to go out into the world and make it better? And also for our, for our listeners who may not be familiar with with all of the things you did. Um, what, are you, what are some of the things you're most proud of?
0: Well, first, first of all, just as a background, I would say the whole concept of tikkun olam, the, the idea that, that God has put us here to make things better, to prepare the world. Um, Rabbi Wax really convinced me of that. I learned about it even more at, at Nifty Camp and in, in just all aspects of my Jewish life. And so I think I think that is just a basic value that has meant a lot to me. Um, I think I could give you a long list of things that I wish I had done to conform to those teachings that I didn't because I was too busy, too weak, too what I, something else. Who knows? Uh, it was just as my father would have said. It was just too much. Um, so so I think that I think that, that Jewish values really are what made me think that being out in the community is important. I think it's incredibly important that every child get a good education. And you're not going to get that gun without public schools. I think what makes this country great is universal public education. That is one single thing. If I had to pick one thing, that's what I think makes this country great. So I was always active in various uh, Committees and, and organizations uh, promoting public schools, uh, one of which was always the, the Memphis Urban League, um, and where I I could give you a hundred stories of things that happened with the Urban League and the uh, campaigns we had and successes we had. Um, you know, I, I don't know that I could tell you specifically what building it was or what what have you? But but there's you know a number of buildings that the Urban League is occupied that I was responsible for getting for them one way or another, either through uh, gifts or not gifts from me, but getting gifts um, and and that kind of thing. Um, made a lot of good friends there. Um, that, I don't know if that answers. Yeah,
1: it totally doesn't. And question. I hear you say at the very beginning that um, there's so many more things that you wish you had done, um, which um, it just reminds me of this, this text from Pirke Avot, um, from our, our foundational ethical text as, as Jews, Loa Alecha Hamlachaligmor, velo lehivatel mimena, I might have left out a word there Uh, I think that was it but um, that we are not required to complete the task um, the work of repairing the world but neither are we free uh, to uh, desist from it right and um, as any one human being I mean our life is finite and of course there's more we wish we could do but that doesn't mean we didn't make a big difference along the way
0: for a number of years I was a member of the board and I was uh, maybe the secretary, some sort of an officer at LeMoyne College. And, and that was an interesting experience uh, because that, y- you could make an argument that the, 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 uh, the uh, what do they call it, historically black? Mm-hmm. How's, that for yeah, how's, yeah. That, how's that for a euphemism? HBCU. Yeah, how's that for a euphemism? Really promoting segregation. And, and in a slight sense, that's true, but it's also promoting uh, pride it's also promoting uh, education for people who otherwise would be either too poor or too shy uh, or too isolated to get an education. Um, and it's definitely got a, a, a place in this, in this society that's very valuable. And uh, and there were, you know, there were, there were a lot of times when I was the only white guy in the room, and uh, I have to say I'm not bragging about that or complaining. I'm just saying it was comfortable. I was comfortable. Um, and
1: what what do you think led you to be comfortable in that situation, so comfortable, um, being around people from different walks of life who maybe had different life stories than you did? Um, was it a shared mission?
0: yeah I've, I've, I've always felt if you, if you would ask me other than my family, other than the two unbelievable doctors I have and so forth, uh, if you ask me, what, what, what is the aspect of my life that I really feel some pride in? is, is the, the variety of people that I have become close friends with. And that was true in high school and college, uh, and, and certainly much more so since then. Um, people of different religions, people of different races, uh, who were not chosen for that reason, who, were, who were, became a friend, because of who they were individually, not because of or in spite of their ethnicity, but they just were. They just were. And and. Uh, um,
1: I th- I think that's such an important message for for us today because um, I think a lot of forces in our society are trying to um, to distill human beings down to their skin color down to their gender identity. Absolutely, um, or, or their their sexual orientation, um, but every individual human being is different, and um, seeing the individual humanity in in someone else um, is is just what friendship and relationship is all about.
0: Absolutely, and the wonderful story what a wonderful story there was in the New York Times. You, I'm sure you saw it about. Uh, Aaron is his name? Canales? Can- Canales? Yeah, and Brittany? Yeah. I mean, gosh, I was choked up. Um,
1: Our executive director, Stacy Canales, um, for those of you who missed this this article, um, her son, Aaron, got married a, about a month ago. And um, he and his wife, Brittany, their, their marriage was written up in The New York Times.
0: Right. They were high school sweethearts. Um, uh, that so broke up and came back together. It was really a wonderful story. really was. Yeah. We're, and
1: we're so happy for y'all, Mazeltov. tov.
0: Yes, it's yeah, And, and uh, you know, there'll, there'll be people in this congregation who might not be thrilled with that as we and I are, and, and hopefully they'll, they'll learn. And I've seen this, it's interesting when, when, when the reform movement said they were going to do same-sex marriages. There was some debate at Temple of Israel. Maybe even we had a meeting of whether or not we should do them here, and we had some members who spoke out against it. Who I think have now come around. Some people I can think of who said, "You know what? I was wrong about that. That was that was that was bigoted. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have believed that." And I think that's a great accomplishment for for Judaism, for our congregation. That I think this congregation should. Should always be in the forefront of doing what's human, hmm. and 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 I think we usually are, and uh, sometimes we may go a little bit too way way too much one way or another way, but I think we work it out, and so I'm, I'm I'm proud of the values of this congregation.
1: I totally agree. I mean, I feel blessed to work at a congregation who was at the forefront of that, um, especially in the deep south, and I think what you said a moment ago, the fact that sometimes people um, maybe start in one place in terms of their opinion, um, but then after seeing the humanity of, of the issue, after seeing, um, act, knowing someone who the issue affects or um, seeing a human story, it, it, change is possible. And that's such a Jewish, I mean, we're just coming out of the holiday of Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, and, The idea that we're able to change, that we're not condemned to be the same person we always were, that's a very Jewish idea.
0: And we're not condemned to be the same congregation we always were. Uh, I take tremendous pride, I don't take any credit, uh, and and I had to learn along with everybody else, at how this congregation's practices, uh, ceremonies, became gradually more and more traditional. I remember saying to uh, Harry Danziger, I said, Harry, I noticed that, did we not used to just keep the Ark open during the Torah reading, and now you close it and then you open it again to put the Torahs away? He said, that's right. I said, why, is that just an accident? Why is that? I had no idea. And he explained to me that there are Jews, probably not who grew up at Temple of Israel, there are Jews who feel very uncomfortable Sitting down while the ark is open. Well, I thought, what a wonderful thing. To, to, be, to have some way of respecting everybody's view, mm-hmm. even if it's not our own, without earning our own. It just it brings people together with a common a common ethic. And I just thought that was wonderful. And I think that's very uh, symbolic, is that the very word, of of this congregation.
1: It, it's so such a genius insight also by Rabbi Danziger. Um, he when he was on this podcast, he said that, you know he instituted a lot of changes, made helped make the congregation embrace a lot of Jewish traditions that we had um, we had uh, drifted away from. And he said, um, he always wanted to make sure that if if he was nudging us in the direction of something more traditional, that if you didn't like it, it was just a matter of taste. It wasn't a matter of right or wrong. That's right. And it's, I just think that's a deep insight into um, being non-judgmental, into the fact that just because you have a different point of view doesn't make you a bad person, doesn't make you wrong. And look at where that, look at where that technique or that strategy got us. I mean, mm-hmm. now the, almost the entire service is Hebrew. Um, which some people like, and some people maybe pref- wish that there was much more English. Um, we wear tali tote, We wear kipot. Um, We—it's it, very
0: different than the congregation was fifty years ago. And, and 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 as those changes were made, people learned. It was it was not forced on anybody. It was a, it was a learning, a bringing together event, not a forced event, um, and uh, I'm all for it. Hmm.
1: Well, I I would love, wish we had all day to, to have this conversation, but I want to be respectful of your time. And so I want to just ask you one last question, getting away a little bit from, from Temple for a second, but it, it definitely um, is inspired by the same values Temple um, instilled in you but I wanted to ask you about your role in the campaign of Fred Davis. Um, and for, if, if you could give our readers a, a little background about, about what was at stake in this campaign, um, as, as Fred Davis ran for, for city council here in Memphis, um, and then how you got to be involved as um, a leader in this campaign, and, and just what that was like for you.
0: I am th- very bad at remembering dates but I think it was around 1968 or so when Memphis adopted a new form of government the city council mayor strong mayor form of government and and there was there were a number of council positions available uh, to be elected for the very first time I think 8 or 9 were districts geographic districts the city was split up into those districts. And then there were some others, four, five, three or four, uh, the city at large. At that time, uh, Memphis was majority white, and the electorate was absolutely majority white. So prior to that time, there had been no black folks involved in city government to speak of. So the aim of the drafters of this new charter, city charter, was to have um, at least three black councilmen. So there were three of those districts that were majority black. So they were almost certain to elect a, a black person as their council person, councilman or woman. We lived in, we had just moved recently into district four, which was just west of Highland, uh, basically Orange Mound. Uh, and it was 60% white and 40% black, more or less. And my next-door neighbor and lifetime good friend, George Lapidus, and I were looking at a list of some 16 uh, characters, 16 uh, candidates, who were running for the District 4 uh, councilperson seat. And, And to us, the outstanding one who should have been elected was a black man named Fred Davis, whom neither George nor I had ever met in any way. And we just said, look, we were young. We were just starting our careers. We're going to go vote for this guy. We're going to go work for this guy. So we went to his house and knocked on the door. Uh, and there are podcasts like this of Fred telling this story, <laughs> who does it much better than I do. But we knocked on his door and introduced ourselves and said, we, we live in District 4. We would like to be part of your campaign. And we talked for a while and we said, OK, we're going to do it. And so for a couple of months, George and I, we split it up pretty much, went around to what they called Coke parties. Now, they had nothing to do with cocaine. It was uh, uh, Coca-Cola. Uh, backyard parties. This is,
1: this is a family podcast.
0: So. Right. The backyard, backyard parties uh, where not alcoholic. Drinks were served. And candidates were invited to come and speak. And Fred could not go to all of those, of course. So George and I went, and I remember saying to Fred, Fred, I'm happy to do this, I want to do it, but is it really going to be good for you for a white guy to go in some of these black neighborhoods? Uh, I'm glad to do it, and he said, I hate to tell you this, he said, we're still in the position where, to some extent, black folks do what the boss man tells them to do, and I think it'll work out just fine. So I, I don't know when I ever felt more comfortable, had more fun, I was i was had no children by that time. Natalie went with me sometimes. <clears throat> and, we, and we did this night after night after night. Finally, it was the night before the election. And, um, and uh, we drew straws or somehow decided who got, to, who got to be the speaker at the Baptist church on Park Avenue where all the black candidates were going to speak. And uh, I don't know if I won or lost, but I, I gave that speech. Got a lot of our men, and uh, Fred and I uh, and George have remained very close friends. Fred passed away a couple of years ago, but we have remained very close friends all these years ever since. Uh, he get reelected and reelected, and uh, we worked for him and worked for him. But we didn't have anywhere near the influence that we had in that first election. Um, and it was it was a chance to to just stand up and say, here we are. We're going to do what we think is right. Uh, One of the other candidates, I I think there may have been a runoff, but I can't swear to it. But one of the other candidates was blatantly racist uh, uh, in his his speeches and campaigns. And so it was a a coming to, to, well, as I said in that church, the coming to Jesus moment. But uh, it it worked, and, and it was a wonderful part of my life.
1: Hmm. Well, I just want to thank you for, um, for being on this podcast with us today, but for a, a lifetime of not only a, a tremendously impactful legal career, but for setting an example for, for so many of us, for me, for, for our listeners, of what an impact you can have um, in your own community um, here at Temple, and also as a leader, uh, making a real difference in this city, working every day in your private life uh, to make this place better and more humane.
0: Well, I, I think you exaggerate greatly, but that's what a rabbi is supposed to do. <laughs>
1: well, well, thanks again, and um, we we hope you'll join us next time on Tour to the People.
0: Thank you.